The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Good afternoon. I am Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us for today's discussion on the L1 intra-company transferee status and visa-related issues. Joining me for today's teleconference are two of my esteemed colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, Kanya Sanders and Joel Janovich, who will discuss different aspects of the topic. Uh, Generally, to make it more fun and exciting for you all, we will hopefully have a lively discussion and go over like a broad overview and then get into some details. Again, why is the L1 so important for us? Have the, now that the H1 uh, registrations were done, the lottery selections have been picked, questions about second selections, we don't know. That's all up in the air. But one of the very helpful options, of course, is the L1 option for many of you, whether you're employers or employees, to consider this option. So what is the L1? The L1 is meant for a person who's traveling, you know, between certain companies. That means it requires the person to have worked abroad, either as an executive, a manager, or with specialized knowledge for at least one year, within the past three years before entering the United States, with the understanding that the person will continue to work at, that, at the U.S. employer uh, in the similar or same capacity, right? So we'll get again into detail. So this is a very broad definition and there are exceptions. The foreign and the U.S. company must have a relationship that is generally under the law required, which requires something like a parent, a subsidiary, an affiliate, a branch office, or a joint venture. Um, and there's lots of cases on each of these different terms and definitions, which is, again, outside the scope of our discussion. So for each of these terms, U.S. immigration law has very specific requirements and definitions. So with that, I'm going to invite Kanya to talk about, you know, explaining how this actually works. Kanya, take it away. Thank you, Sheila. So, yeah, the definitions are very important for, you know, how the U.S. immigration law regulations, they define the relationship between the companies that qualify to transfer someone on L-1. So it is important to understand that not everybody can qualify for the L-1 category. While in some cases, an argument may be necessary you know, to define uh, and explain the definition of the relationship. But in many cases, if the relationship does not satisfy the, U, the uh, immigration regulations for the relationship, then the, um, they are not successful in doing an L1. Along the same lines, requests for evidence are a common tool USCIS employs. If employers do not pay enough attention to document how all the legal requirements are met, simply because a lot of the terminology used in the L1 context have common everyday meaning, but they do not satisfy 
the U.S. immigration law uh, definition for these terms. Right. And um, to that point, Kanye, one of the basic requirements that Sheila had mentioned is that you need to have a qualifying relationship between the company abroad and the U.S. company. And that can look um, like in different manners. It can be a parent subsidiary relationship where the foreign entity owns the U.S. entity or vice versa. It can be an affiliate. It can be a branch. Um, just because the companies have the same name, you have a, you know, entity in the U.S. and entity abroad that has the same name, that does not mean they automatically qualify. You still need that common ownership and control, um, and they should be able to show that qualifying relationship through corporate documents such as stock certificates, operating agreements, perhaps, um, anything you can use that you can show the legal corporate relationship between the companies. Perfect. Thank you very much for that jumping in, Joel, to explain that. So one key focus, of course, on the issue of qualifying relationship is ownership. So the question that's often asked is, does the foreign entity own a majority share of the U.S. entity or vice versa? Does an individual own a majority share of both of the entities in the U.S. and abroad? Or if each company is owned by a common group of people, does each individual own approximately the same share or proportion in each of these entities. These are arrangements that will typically satisfy the qualifying relationship requirements. On the other hand, if the two companies are owned by different parties or the qualifying relationship, you know, uh, or the percentages are completely very dramatically different, etc., then the qualifying relationship typically will not exist, even if the person abroad is a close relative of the person in the U.S. So let's talk a little bit about the differences between the L1A and the L1B, and I'm going to invite you, Kanya, to jump back in. Thanks, Sheila. So, right, there are two types of Ls, uh, L visas available, as mentioned earlier. L1A is for managerial or executive intracompany transferees, while the L1B is for specialized knowledge intra-company transferees. Now, managers are people who actively manage the organization or a division or department of the organization or a function. Managers either oversee the work of other supervisors, managers, or professionals, or they manage an essential function of the organization. And also, they have discretion over day-to-day -day operations. They, um, so, th so that's an important point that to show that they can exercise discretion um, on their own. This means that simply being called a manager is not enough. It becomes necessary to show what the person is responsible for at the company and how he does his job while managing other people. It is also important to note that more than 50% of the individual's duties has to be purely managerial. So when you're listing the individual's duties, you need to assign percentage of time that individual will be engaged in executing those duties. The Again, just to repeat, look, the individuals who are being managed by, must be managers 
and or professionals. If they are not managers or professionals, then generally USCIS would say they tend to be first-line supervisors. They are not the type of managers the L1 program is designed for. Thank you, Kanya. That's a very good point. But the one point that I know we often see RFEs, questions, even at the border, anywhere, is this issue of the functional manager, which is a little bit tricky. And since Joel is our in-house resident and does all of these L1 cases, so Joel, why is it yeah. more difficult for a functional manager? Generally, functional managers, which is, a, which is still part of the L1A category, they tend to be more t difficult um, compared to the traditional people manager where you can look at an org chart and kind of ascertain what, what role the person has to a degree. Um, the challenge with functional manager cases is that the beneficiary still can't be pr primarily engaged in the hands-on non-managerial work. Um, so they may or may not have people reporting to them, but they still have to show how they are managing the function as opposed to performing it. Um, you also have within the L1A category, you have executives. Uh, executives are responsible for directing the management of the organization or a major component or function. Uh, they typically, an executive will set policies and goals and have broad latitude to make important business decisions. Uh, they operate only with minimal supervision typically. And then finally, you get to L1B, which are all for specialized knowledge employees. Um, these are employees it, uh, who have detailed understanding of either the company's products or services and or um, international markets for those products and services, or they may have advanced knowledge of the company's processes and procedures. Uh, it typically needs to be knowledge that you can only get through experience with that employer. Um, so, for instance, if you're working with proprietary software or methodologies that are unique to the company, um, and that those are important to the competitiveness of the company, those can make for, for stronger specialized knowledge arguments. Thank you, Joel, for explaining how the executives and managerial aspect of it works. And the next one, of course, is the one we talk about, the specialized knowledge, right? Uh, and it's easy to, because of the word special in the word, Sometimes people get a little mixed up between the specialty occupation definition, which is used with H-1B status, and specialized knowledge for the L-1B status. Um, so it's a high standard. The USCIS holds a high standard, as, by the way, do U.S. consular posts outside uh, when issuing the visas, for example. But the USCIS is very high, has very high standards when they adjudicate the L-1B petitions. Uh, often re issuing RFEs or requests for evidence that the employer needs to show that the employee or beneficiary not only possesses the specialized knowledge, but is also a key employee within the, within the company. Keep in mind that the person does not necessarily have to possess specialized knowledge of something proprietary to that particular employer. In practice, however, it is more challenging to get an L-1B petition approved when there is no proprietary element to the specialized knowledge. Also, it's not necessary for the beneficiary to have held the same position abroad as the intended job in the U.S. as long as the job is either as a manager, executive, or having worked in the specialized knowledge field, right? 
can again, we'll discuss it later, how it might impact some the green card part of it, but now we're focusing on the L1A, L1B aspect. So for example, a person who was in a specialized knowledge position abroad, a person could be offered a position in the US as an executive under the L1A category. And as I just explained, for the green card, that could be potentially a, 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 an issue down the road. So with that, let's jump back to specialized knowledge and responding to RFEs, Kanya. Yes, so responding to an RFE on the issue of L1B specialized knowledge or refiling such a petition following a dis denial has always been challenging because we are trying to show USCIS what the person knows, how the person gained that knowledge, um, and you also must be able to demonstrate how this person stands out as compared to his or her peers in the field, including those employed by the same petitioning company. So it is important to remember that just because a worker is special or important in the company does not mean that he or she is a specialized knowledge worker. So specialized knowledge employees have special knowledge of the company's products, services, and the international market for those products or services. Or they have advanced knowledge of company processes and procedures. Keywords are special and advanced. Generally, it must be knowledge that can be obtained only through working with a company overseas. This is not knowledge that is readily available uh, in the marketplace. So if the person... Uh, and you have to show that this specialized knowledge is required for the individual's assignment in the U.S. and that there is no one in the U.S. who has that knowledge for an assignment or contract the company has for work. And if this person is not able to come, they're going to lose the contract or, you know, they will uh, stand to lose uh, monetarily. That shows that this knowledge is required for the company to stay competitive in the marketplace. Great. Thank you. So I guess the employers today are probably software companies. They do technology. And even companies that traditionally are not technology companies are all involved in technology one way or the other in today's day and age. So, Joe, uh, you know, how does this apply in the technology field or other situations? Yeah, so I, I would say most L1Bs especially are filed within the technology sector uh, to one level or another. So many of these cases involve a situation where the company has a proprietary product or tool um, that it's marketing to the U.S. or using in the U.S. And the company is arguing that it needs to transfer its employee who's an expert on that product or an expert on that tool, um, they need to transfer them to the U.S. so that they can work on modifying, customizing, or implementing the product in real time in the U.S. In the IT software context, many companies are developing these proprietary tools. And so what's happened is USCIS doesn't simply accept the fact that it's proprietary, that you guys developed it, and therefore it must be specialized. Um, instead, they, they tend to focus on why that person's knowledge of the company's proprietary software is quote-unquote special, um, why you couldn't just give it to some IT person who's here in the U.S. And it should be noticed, noted, and it's probably, you know, obvious to most people um, 
working in the sector. USCIS tends to be reluctant to approve L1B petitions for kind of generic IT consulting firms, especially where they're coming from India. Um, we, again, we've, we've seen far more pushback for, for Indians coming in on L1B than people from, say, Western Europe. It doesn't mean IT consulting firms or Indian firms cannot use the L1B category. It's just that they really have to have everything aligned and they have to have everything strongly evidenced. Um, if the goal, though, is to have the worker come to just handle routine consulting services for clients in the U.S., um, the kind of thing you would use the H1B category for, typically, the L1B category may not be a viable option. So why is there such a so much greater pushback on companies you know, employees of certain countries like India? Is it because there's so many people that come from there? So much usage? Is it percentage? Is it, uh, you know, xenophobia? Is it a combination of factors? Is it, what do you think it might be? I know it's, uh, we're kind of doing I think the answer is here. yes. The answer is yes to all of that. Um, oh, without okay. question, yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that uh, analysis and that explanation. So again, going back, the critical part is to define what is specialized knowledge, right? Then explain and provide evidence how the employee gained the specialized knowledge to show that the employee in fact holds that specialized knowledge. And then you can explain why that specialized knowledge is required for the U.S. position. That is how the specialized knowledge makes the beneficiary a key employee. And when defining the specialized knowledge, it's important to isolate the specialized knowledge from what the USCIS or the consular officer may consider common and generally has knowledge. So documents on the proprietary nature of the product, for example, the software, patented documents, license agreements could be very helpful in showing the proprietary nature of the knowledge which then can be presented as specialized knowledge. Uh, in, at our firm, at the Murti Law Firm, of course, we would go over the different kinds of documents which may be used in connection with defining the specialized knowledge and how to strengthen and improve your chances of trying to convince the USCIS or the consular officer, especially in blanket cases. So to be clear, a significant percentage of these cases do not involve patented products. Uh, why patents can be very helpful, but similarly, if software tools are proprietary, even if they're not patented, potentially that would be helpful. And as we had discussed before, even if there is nothing proprietary, this does not necessarily automatically exclude the person from being qualified. But keep in mind, it could significantly weaken the case. So how do we get to show the beneficiary had gained the specialized knowledge, Kanya? Right. So that's, you know, that's where the, the rubber hits the road sometimes. Because you have to show how the beneficiary gained the specialized knowledge and how difficult it is to gain that knowledge, how long it takes to gain that knowledge. So it is easier for that person to gain it, the less likely USCIS will approve it because we have to show that it will be economically not feasible for the company to train someone um, and get them up to speed. That's why they need to bring this person. But if this person gained the knowledge overseas in a week, then 
USCIS will conclude that the knowledge is not so advanced or special, and anybody can gain it within a short period of time. So yeah, I've even seen cases you, where even after a year at the consulates, they usually say, oh, only one year? You need three years. We're like, no, there's nothing in the law that says three years, but they insist, like, oh, if it's only one year, something must be amiss. It doesn't make sense. Right, and it doesn't make sense because the regulations provide that you have to be employed overseas only for one year. So it, you know, it should then mean that the person gaining that knowledge within a one-year period, that should be sufficient. Uh, so that is you know, how they gain is the most big. For many IT companies that develop proprietary products, the L1B beneficiary may be the actual technical developer of the product. It's less strong of a case in this software example. The benefit is just develop some modules that are part of the software or the individual is only trained on the product and the training, as I said, took a week you know, to a couple of months. In a situation where the beneficiary created something used by the company, she would not have received any training on the product. So in those circumstances, good evidence would be technical documents created by the employee uh, for the product that they developed. They would have project plans used when developing and also to show that the beneficiary was the author of these technical documents. They also can show that the individual provides training to others in, uh, in the company so showing that you know this person has you know has the specialized knowledge and is the go-to person in the company. Now we also discussed how the specialized knowledge makes the beneficiary key employee. USCIS actually holds the position that if everyone holds the same knowledge within your company, then nobody possesses specialized knowledge, especially when your company has a large number of employees. The focus has to be on explaining why it would not be possible for the company to move forward without having a particular employee with this knowledge and how difficult it is to impart that knowledge to a new employee. So you need to compare and contrast the employee that you want to bring to the U.S. with other employees in your foreign company overseas as well as with the company in the U.S. So this is not perfect that, you know, it has to be necessarily just be one employee with the knowledge, but it should not be commonly had, meaning that everybody can't have that knowledge, but just a handful of people. Thank you, Kanya. So again, let's jump to the manager executive category and have you explain a little bit about the people managers because, you know, supervising other managers or other professionals, Joe. Right. So first of all, when you're filing these, you have to understand that you either need to file this as a manager or an executive. If you say the person is both, USCIS will require you to meet all of the requirements of both. Um, so that may not exactly um, comply with what happens in the real world. I don't know that there's always that distinguishment, but According to the, the way the USCIS interprets the regulations, that is required. So as for people managers, um, which again, kind of the traditional manager as it's viewed, 
These are people that are managing the employees. Um, so for people managers, ideally the beneficiary will be ma managing a substantial number of staff in the U.S., even if they will also be managing people abroad. Uh, USCIS appears to give significantly less weight to overseas staff who will be managed by the beneficiary from the U.S. I think they take the, the perspective that if you want to manage people in, in India or where have you, you can do that from India. You don't need to be in the U.S. for that. So you can include that as part of your filing, but it typically is not going to be the focus of a day-to-day -day manager of people. Um, they also pay very close attention to the types of people being supervised. If you are managing professional workers, um, that's going to be some, someone that requires a degree in a particular field. That can make for a good L1A case where you have a, a you know six, seven professionals uh, reporting to you. Um, or if you have supervisors or managers reporting to you, that can work. If you are managing people that are not clearly professional positions, such as sales people, or, you know, as opposed to sales engineers, but gen generic sales people, typically um, directly managing those people, are, that's not going to be considered a managerial duty. Um, and you also need to, for a standard L1, you need to show that the people you're going to be managing are already in place. You can't just go and argue, well, when I get here, I'm going to manage, I'm going to hire a bunch of people to manage. Um, you need to show you qualify at the time of filing, which includes that the staff that you're going to be managing are already there. And if you want to add that you'll also be hiring additional people, that's fine, but I wouldn't expect that to be taken, uh, given much weight by USCIS either. Um, and so for that, you can use pay records, you can use educational records, all these different things to show that you have the staff in place, that they are in professional positions, here are their duties, et cetera. Boy, it really sounds as you're explaining it and I'm listening to you both, I'm like, this is really sounding like an uphill battle and we've seen that over and over and over again, which is why L1 cases are becoming so much more complicated, but they are a fantastic option, obviously, when the H1 quota is met or your person didn't get selected like this year. Uh, and again, a lot of people try to make the argument regarding functional managers. So as we know, for functional managers, you need to first identify the position, the function that is being managed, how you define the function has the potential to either make or break your case. You then need to explain how that function is essential. Also, as the employer, you need to show how the person is managing the function, not just performing that function. You can argue the subordinates are helping to perform a lot of the day-to-day -day ministerial or administrative tasks. You could also potentially use staff who do not report directly to the beneficiary or the employee being hired. Uh, use other staff uh, who are assisting with performing a lot of these functions. Also need to show that the beneficiary will act at a senior level and show how the beneficiary will exercise discretion over certain functions. And so that kind of ties in when we talk about, you know, uh, hiring people here, that actually ties in with new office petitions. So when you're starting a brand new company in the U.S. to set up that parent subsidiary branch, whatever relationship, this, then you have to start a new company in the U.S. And so many businesses who are ambitious in other countries, they now want to set up a branch, set up a U.S. operation, branch, subsidiary, what have you, off the foreign business. They want to transfer one or two senior level folks, maybe more as the company continues to grow 
to grow the U.S. operation, to get the business off the ground, maybe stay for a short or long-term basis. And, of course, at the Mosley Law Firm, we've done quite a few of those kinds of such cases for large, small, mid-sized companies who transfer executives and managers, and they utilize what's called the new office petition. So this allows the person then to perform certain non-managerial tasks or non-executive work, but again, for a very limited period of time as when it's considered a new office petition. Generally, a new office is defined as an operation that is in existence for less than one year, and when filing the new office L1A petition to transfer the executive or manager to the new office, the company is required to submit additional types of evidence with the petition, and the list goes on and on. So I'm going to invite maybe Kanya to jump in and go over some of that. Sure, Sheila. So, okay, so the, the different types of evidence that you need to show for a new office. First of all, you need to show that sufficient physical premises to house the new office has been secured. So you need to have a lease deed with sufficient square footage, including floor fans, photos that can help. Now, when people are coming here, starting off a new operation, very cost-conscious, don't want to, you know, take a, a huge place. But if you want to start off with just a small place, you need to be able to show that there is potential to expand and add more space um, as they continue to hire within the first year uh, based on what you plan on doing in the space. Even in this modern age, USCIS does not accept a virtual or shared office that will not meet USCIS requirements. They want to see that the company has invested in um, the space um, for the operation. The other evidence they have to show is, just like any other L1, that the transferee has been employed for one continuous year overseas within the three-year period immediately prior to the filing of the petition, the difference is that you have to show they have been employed overseas in an executive or managerial capacity. The prop and also that the proposed employment will involve work as an executive or manager in the new operation by the end of the first year. So leading up, during the first year, they can have a combination of hands-on work as well as managerial type of work. By the end of the year, they should have brought sufficient people aboard so that they are purely functioning in a managerial capacity. Now, this means that if the transferee was employed in a specialized knowledge role in the foreign company, that employee is not eligible for a new office L1A Although he or she may be eligible for a regular L1A or L1B, um, uh, you know, with regular L1A or L1B, but not for a new office L1B is also possible, but it has slightly different requirements and we will not be addressing in the time we have today. Uh, evidence showing that the new U.S. company within one year of the approval of the petition will support the need for a traditional executive or managerial position, not a startup executive or managerial. As I explained, a startup executive or managerial will have a combination of duties, 
but at the end of the year, you need to show that the proposed nature of the office, outlining the scope of the business, organizational structure, and financial and personnel goals to be achieved within the first year. And you could also show in the subsequent three or four years this way to show with a detailed business plan how they anticipate the company to grow and support a managerial position. I think, you know, Joel, um, you know all about business plans. Yeah, so the business plan really is kind of a, a shows the benchmarks for what the company is going to look like within one year. Um, and so Connie kind of referenced earlier um, the, the virtual office issue. And so uh, one exception to that is if you're indicating, if you clearly indicate in the business plan that all of your employees will be working virtually, you can sometimes get away with that, uh, at least to have maybe a very small uh, you know, physical footprint or, or something along those lines, as long as you have somewhere for the beneficiary to physically work. Um, and so, you know, especially since COVID, we've seen that more and more. Um, but the business plan is where you need to, you really need to indicate that in the business plan or else USDIS is going is, is gonna to have a real tough time approving your case. Um, the business plan needs to be realistic. Um, if you have, if it's too ambitious, if it's something that you're never going to realistically going to achieve, USDIS may deny it because they don't buy it. Or you're going to get to the end of the one year and file for the extension and all but guaranteed that the extension is going to be denied because you've fallen so so short of what you've indicated. Um, also, in the business plan and in general in the filing, you want to show the size of the U.S. investment and the financial ability of the foreign entity to pay the beneficiary salary, to cover the U.S. Co company's expenses before they start to generate income. Um, and they usually want to see the money has been transferred and spent, but if you don't have a U.S. bank account, sometimes just showing things like meeting minutes or official minutes with the foreign company's bank account to show they have the money can suffice. Um, so, you know, again, we do see that a lot. Um, also, the organizational structure of the foreign entity is also necessary to show that the executive or managerial, the managerial nation, uh, nature of the position abroad. So you're going to show documentation to that, to that end to show how it is that this person really was functioning as the manager. Uh, a lot of times you'll have that integrated into the business plan, that and the, the proposed U.S. organizational chart to show that this person truly is a manager. Um, keep in mind that these are all special factors that are in addition, in addition to the regular L1A petition requirements. So essentially showing how it is you're going to qualify within a year and that you're still meeting all these basic requirements of having worked abroad as a manager and that within, within one year the company will support a manager and you'll be coming here to, to, to be working in that managerial role. Um, so as I mentioned, these typically will only be approved for one year. Um, and prior to the end of that year, you're, you're going to be fi filing that extension to show that you've essentially done more or less what you indicated that you're going to do. Um, so I think maybe, Sheila, if you want to talk a little bit more about the new office extension. Yeah, so this is where it can get obviously much more complicated, right? Because the new office petition extension filings have special requirements that make it different than a regular L1 extension. And the preparation of an extension petition after the initial one year of the new office L1 
is definitely more challenging than the initial preparation. And the reason is because the petition, you now have to establish or show that the U.S. company has grown to a point where it can support the need for a long-term executive or manager as opposed to just for a short one-term, one-year duration while setting things up. And so this is a very common issue with the RFEs that we see. And it also means that the L1A beneficiary should no longer be performing non-qualifying, that is non-executive, non-managerial, administrative type of duties, but be employed in the more traditional executive or managerial type of role where the primary duties require the person to supervise and oversee a department, a team, an organization, a set, you know, whatever, a very large number of professionals, et cetera. Uh, so as we said earlier, you know, during the initial one-year period, that employee may perform duties related to setting up the new operation, including recruitment, pol setting policies and procedures, securing vendors, marketing, et cetera. Uh, and so the duties for that initial one-year period may not necessarily be considered as executive or managerial in nature uh, because there is all this substantial amount of time, effort, and energy invested in this hands-on type of work, which normally would be performed by subordinates. But after a year, they're like, okay, now you can afford to hire or you should be able to afford to hire some of these new pro these other employees. So it is extremely important to invest the time in developing the new business, hiring the right people that was mentioned initially when filing the one-year uh, new office L1 petition so that the beneficiary slash L1A, L1B employee, L1A employee is able to focus on job duties that are considered primarily managerial or executive. If that is not done, then there's a much higher likelihood of obtaining an RFE or even denials, unfortunately, are becoming fairly common in the L1 um, world. Um, and so, you know, what we find is that they, they don't want to hear reasons. And I think, uh, Kanya, you want to talk a little bit about, you know, the USCIS's response on why the person or why the business didn't grow, et cetera. Right. USCIS is not interested in the reasons why a business is not functioning in a way to support employment of a manager or executive. Sometimes it is possible to get a second one year, especially if the individual came later after, you know, and had not actually invested a whole year in, can show the economic downturn or some, you know, some valid reason and you may be able to get a second one year. However, at the end of that second one year, it is essential to show how the L1A worker is employed in a primarily managerial or executive role. The extension L1A petition after the completion of the one year in new office must show the, the following. Evidence that the U.S. and foreign entities are still qualifying organizations. Evidence that the U.S. company has been doing business for the previous year. Statement and documentation describing the staffing of the new operation, including the number of employees and types of positions held, accompanied by evidence of wages paid to employees. So you would need to show pay stubs. Just showing an organizational chart with names on the chart is not sufficient. You actually have to show that the, the people are actually employed by the company. 
and evidence of the financial status of the U.S. operation. Another requirement is to describe the duties already performed by the L1A worker during the past year and the manager or executive duties that will be performed going forward. It is essential that you show both of that. It is a problem to not provide both, and USCIS does issue RFEs in the absence of an explanation of what was done during the new office year, and then a separate list of duties going forward. Yeah, yeah I so mean, I, definitely, definitely, yeah. So, Joel, I guess you're going to talk about the conflicting needs for companies in these situations. Right, and so this kind of goes back to the business plan where you're trying to, you want to have, present a good business plan showing that you're going to meet the requirements within a year, but if you're too kind of aggressive about it, too optimistic about your growth, and you don't meet the requirements, um, your extension can get denied. So when you're looking to hire, you need to show that the employees are already hired. Um, and ideally hired and you have some kind of paper trail showing that they've received a few paychecks at least. Um, and so you're balancing those needs versus, well, maybe we don't need those employees yet, so we'll, we'll delay hiring them and, and risk, risk getting the L1A extension denied because we don't have that evidence. So you have to look at the possible immigration consequences, both, again, at the time of the business plan and then a year later when you're filing for that extension. Um, they're not really going to give any weight to employees or to, you know, to be hired employees that you're planning on hiring down the road. You can sometimes use, uh, uh, you know, you can sometimes indicate you have contractors that you are managing, but you have to be careful with that. I've seen people try to say, well, I'm, I hired Murphy Law Firm, so they're my immigration attorney, so I'm, I'm managing them as contractors, which is, it's not accurate. Um, I, I've never been managed by a client when I'm doing this. We're, we're guiding them, we're helping them, we're servicing them, but it, it's not the same as managing a, a, a contractor. And the same may be for things like an accountant, possibly, um, or, or things of that nature where you're not really managing those people. They're just contractors you hired versus some contractors where you may be literally managing them, in which case, in those cases, you may be able to use them in place of W-2 employees, but certainly the gold standard is the uh, managing the W-2 employees. That's going to make a much bigger difference for those extensions. Thank you, Joel. Uh, as you can see, we feel we've touched the tip of the iceberg in the last almost 35, 40, almost 40 minutes. Uh, and we try to always wrap these discussions, teleconferences up between 30 and 45 minutes, so we're right on target. Uh, clearly, scrutiny of L1 petitions for compliance with all the different varying rules has heightened over the last several years. It's expected to continue to become more and more challenging because employers are getting more and more desperate as their employees are not getting selected, for example, in the H1 lottery. Um, when their F1 OPTs may be expiring, STEM OPTs expiring, et cetera. But clearly, it's a very valuable visa classification for companies that are planning to expand globally, want to have a U.S. footprint, uh, and transfer key personnel or those uh, with specialized knowledge from their foreign operations to the United States. Uh, if you're ever stuck, you need help, certainly come to us. We have an entire team that focuses heavily on L1 issues um, with attorneys and paralegals focusing heavily in this area because it has turned out to become 
as we said, a really complicated and high, uh, you know, high, high uh, um, stress area for most companies. Um, and so now, because on being mindful of the time, on behalf of Kanya Sanders, Joel Janovich, and myself, Sheila Murthy, we want to thank you for joining us today. We certainly hope we will be able to help guide you uh, with your business, with your company, whether it's L1A, L1B, or any other visa category in employment-based immigration. We thank you for joining us today, and we want to wish you and your family a happy summer. Stay safe, stay healthy, and until we meet again next month, take care. Bye-bye. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.